This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Kenwood. We are committed to providing modern turnkey critical communication solutions for today and the future. Hello and welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, I'd like to change it up a bit and open today's podcast with a mailbag segment. We're receiving great letters from our listeners and I'd like to share two with you today. Well, first, Randy from Nova Scotia asks, can you explain how the right of first refusal works in terms of SWAT tactical teams serving search warrants in neighboring counties. Is this a law or just etiquette? Thanks. Well, Randy, that's a great question. And I'm familiar with the concept of assessing all instances where we deploy our SWAT teams uh, in the city I'm from. Certainly if they fit the criteria for an emergency response within our own jurisdiction, no problem. SWAT commander or the supervisor usually makes the call. We also had a matrix for those pre-requests for SWAT team call-outs, say, to use on a high-risk search or arrest warrant. We had a matrix that was considered with specific requirements, you know, certain points if uh, the felon uh, had prior weapons, prior resisting, had a pit bull or attack dog or security or or other things like that. For out-of-town requests, We generally complied with requests according to the same matrix and realize that sometimes uh, from people coming from out of jurisdiction might have other concerns that don't really uh, fit the criteria. But today with high profile incidents and a call to pull back on no knock entries and others, all use of teams is carefully scrutinized for officer safety and to make sure that we have it right for all others concerned, like neighbors, others in the household, children, and so on. Well, that said, I asked our own in-house expert from Police One, expert Lieutenant Dan Marco, about that question. And Dan replied, yes, I have heard of the right of refusal for home teams. There have always been teams whose mayors do not let them leave their jurisdictions, where there is one suicidal person, for instance, who may be suicidal and armed, but not a danger to anyone but themselves. That's why some areas work out mutual aid agreements in advance. Well, I think the the initial question talks about um, coming from outside those areas of mutual aid agreements. And I'd say it's an emerging issue that from here on out, we're going to have to look at differently. If you go to another jurisdiction outside your mutual aid agreement area, you may need to be prepared to convince a neighbor uh, visiting or visiting agency that there are real concrete reasons for their teams and vice versa. And I think that's the way we're going from now on. So I hope that answers your question, Randy. That was a great, uh, great email. Another great email comes from Sergeant Jenny Tulwitz from Reno, Nevada. And she writes, with the success of recent true crime documentaries, Murder Among the Mormons, The Night Stalker, and others, 
which are older crimes that some people may not be familiar with. I was wondering what semi-obscure crime you think would make a good adaption for a streaming service. Well, that's a great issue. It's a great topic, Sergeant Jen. I'm a big true crime pan podcast fan, and uh, I follow the TV docu-series as well. Off the bat, I can think of about a half dozen off the top of my head, many regional, but some national. Uh, a few years ago, my friends and colleagues, Alex Gerald and Jeff Snipes, both uh, crime, uh, criminal justice professors and authors, uh, told the story of former LA Ram and San Francisco 49er NFLer Kermit Alexander and the real tragic story of uh, a South Central uh, gang uh, murdering his family, his mother, sister, and two nephews, uh, really a case of mistaken identity. But um, it, it follows and documents Kermit Alexander's uh, own efforts to find out who the, uh, the suspects were, um, to successfully get them arrested, prosecuted, put on death row, and, and his efforts with, uh, with death, death row after that. Others that come to mind are the zebra murders in San Francisco, random street murders based on the race of the victims by the zealots, and the trailside killer. Um, I usually don't mention names, but it's happened so long ago. David Carpenter, not to be confused with the hillside strangler of LA, but um, the trailside killer um, preyed upon hikers in um, state and, and, um, and parks in uh, Northern California and uh, often killed couples um, or, or several at a time. And um, it's a great, fascinating story. Um, he had a parole officer. He was on parole for similar crimes and it, it just took too long to capture him, but um, he was captured. And I think again, um, great, great email, uh, Sergeant Tolwitz uh, for the conversation starter. And we'd love to hear from our other listeners about um, some ideas you may have, and we may mention them in the next mailbag. So keep those letters coming in. Send us your emails to policingmatters at police1.com, and you may hear us talk about it on a future show. Well, even before the 2020 year that was, many law enforcement agencies looked at ways to address collateral crime and issues that contributed to crime. The Broken Windows concept by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson and the tenets of SEPTED, crime prevention through environmental control, tell us that we need to address disorder, blight, and lower level environmental disruption as a deterrent from larger crimes and gathering points for criminal activity. I'm a true believer in both uh, Broken Windows and SEPTED. And over the course of my 32-year career, I found that uh, the code enforcement officer to be invaluable in accomplishing the mission to keep those environmental disasters in the making from coming to fruition. Well, today we welcome Justin Edson, code enforcement manager, the president of the national nonprofit Code Enforcement Officer Safety Foundation. He is a certified code enforcement administrator, situational awareness specialist, and California post-training officer. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Justin Edson. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, great talking with you and corresponding with you and, and getting the lowdown on 
uh, a lot of what I, I, I knew about code enforcement officers. But let me ask you to, to kick this off. We have uh, law enforcement officers and people looking to enter the profession. And what's the takeaway? What's the most important message you want them to learn about code enforcement officers today? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think the, the main takeaway um, is that code enforcement uh, is here to assist um, the law enforcement side, whether that's uh, local police or sheriffs. Um, code enforcement is a great resource and tool uh, that I've had the experience of working with our, our counterparts. So I would just say to anybody that's in it or coming into it, um, look to your partners in code enforcement and see how we can help um, solve problems uh, in, in the community um, and build that teamwork up between um, the, the law enforcement side and code enforcement. Yeah, it, it was always surprising to me when I would ask an officer to get a CERA project, a scan, analyze, respond, and assess project, or or do some problem solving on a problem issue in a neighborhood. And then I ask them to use a code enforcement officer and they'd look at me with that, you know, thousand mile stare. And it, it occurred to me they didn't, they were not familiar with a code enforcement officer and what they did. Let's tell our larger audience, give us the, give us the elevator speech. What do code enforcement officers do for sworn and non-sworn members of agencies and the public? Yeah, um, that's a, a good point. We, uh, some of the agencies I've worked for, it's actually part of the field training program uh, for the police department to do a segment with the code enforcement unit uh, for a couple hours, learn, ask questions, even do a ride along. And so I'm starting to see that more and more uh, with the, the training program is as new recruits come in, they get to uh, get exposed to what code enforcement can assist with. So code enforcement officers, um, generally speaking, uh, they come in a variety of terms. Um, they, they fall under different departments. Uh, some of them you'll find code enforcement officers in the police department working side by side uh, with the sworn counterparts, but they typically are, are also found in community development departments building and under the city administration uh, of the local jurisdiction. Code enforcement officers are focused on uh, the health and safety code, uh, the building code and the municipal code. So they look at a lot of things that fall on private property, anything that relates to how somebody's living with nuisances on the property, substandard conditions, hoarding. Uh, they also get involved with the business side, with commercial, uh, if there's an illegal operation of any type. Um, code enforcement officers have a, a wide variety of things that they, they touch on and which makes them valuable for that. Um, just in my experience uh, across several cities uh, in Southern California, um, my, my unit has been involved in um, working with ABC, with bar regulations, with massage parlors and human trafficking. We've been involved with illegal vendors um, and then also um, homeless camps and abandoned properties. So. We, we kind of dabble in a little bit of everything, um, but the, the main takeaway is that it's all health and safety related for the community and finding resources to uh, address those issues. And it's, we have tools um, that we could use, but um, for the most part, it's, it's doing the research, uh, the homework and finding who's responsible and getting them to the table so we can clean up the community. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty good nutshell of, of code enforcement, um, just a, a variety of things. I would say that from city to city and state to state, it could widely uh, vary on the job responsibilities that they're assigned, that the city council uh, that runs that, that agency 
can give direction to handle different types of scenarios. So even neighboring cities might handle different types of cases uh, in code enforcement. So there, it's a wide variety of topics, but um, generally speaking, I think that really covers the, the nuisance side um, and the health and safety uh, and the living conditions. Yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, nutshell version of what you do. And it seems that you're a hybrid be between several departments, uh, the city attorney, uh, the Department of Public Health, uh, building codes, uh, traffic, police, of course. Um, how do you get that across in training? I know you're a training officer, um, so you're on radio uh, frequencies, you're using the radio, you're using the 10 code and, and you're bouncing between all these different agencies. How, what's training like for a code enforcement officer? So uh, in California, um, CASIO, which stands for the California Association of Code Enforcement Officers, they passed a bill called AB 2226 uh, in 2016. And that standardized the training uh, for code enforcement officers across the state um, and put requirements in place, similar to what POST does for police officers. And so that bill um, put KCO in charge of certifying uh, code enforcement officers. And so that training requires three modules, all 40 hours each. And then usually in addition to that, most agencies require uh, the PC-832 certification. So uh, typically speaking, most code enforcement officers uh, will go through 120 hours initial training and then uh, the 40 hours of PCA 32 and then they have to maintain 48 hours every three years minimum uh, but I would say most cases they, they go well over that and so the training could be a variety of things from um, building related training uh, that building inspectors do fire inspector training um, and then even some post classes I personally have done um, some some post classes myself um, and depending on what the job duties are there are code enforcement officers that uh, are given certain equipment um, including firearms and, and less lethal that they have to get post uh, certified for those um, and so there's a wide variety of classes that they can take um, and in part of the training process the some agencies have code enforcement on the radio and they're under the police department um, they might have radio access, so they have to learn how to use the radio um, and how to work with their counterparts in different departments. But like you had mentioned, code enforcement officers cover a variety of enforcement topics. Uh, I, I personally know many, many agencies, at least here in California, where code enforcement officers are also the city's parking enforcement, uh, animal control, and uh, park ranger. Um, I've, I personally worked at one city where uh, we were kind of a CSO and a park ranger all in one. And we were um, patrolling the parks. We received fish and game training to enforce fishing on the pier. And uh, we would issue notice, uh, notice to appear citations. Um, and so we had a lot of that contact. We would operate on the radio um, and work side by side and go to briefings with uh, our counterparts, uh, police officers and patrol. So there's a, a variety of different uh, houses that code enforcement kind of falls under, but generally speaking, they have we have minimum requirements for certification, and then the ongoing training is always great. Um, it's not always required, but for myself, I I went through and got my certifications in fire inspection just to help me understand um, some of the life safety issues that come up at businesses and homes. So it's uh, some of it's just uh, out of pure interest, but it helps us build. Uh, 
ourselves up and become a better resource uh, to our city. So um, generally speaking, the training um, is really well organized. It's continuing to grow. Um, the profession started um, kind of in infancy back in the 1980s and 1990s. And since then, these associations have come together to create training protocols, make it more uh, universal. Um, very similar, like I said, to uh, post with police uh, and also with fire training. It's just uh, that way everybody's on the same page and can learn together. So um, it, it's, a, it's a good training program and it's continuing to advance, uh, adding new modules, new, new requirements, um, just to make us better in our job. Yeah, well, that's a great recap. And uh, I, I'm surprised to learn the extensive training that you've had. Uh, 832 PC, 832 of the Penal Code in California is a requirement for reserve officers at most uh, jurisdictions. And so I would imagine you're learning all about uh, laws of arrest and uh, firearms training and all that, the others that go along. But, but code enforcement officers are unarmed by and large, right? Uh, by and large, yes. Um, we have a few agencies that I'm aware of in California where they are armed uh, on duty um, and they go through the, the PC-832 uh, courses and the post training for that. Um, many agencies, uh, they have less lethal. Um, they usually carry tasers or asps, uh, definitely pepper spray. Um, and then there's some agencies where they don't really carry anything. Um, but generally speaking across the country, uh, as the president of the foundation, I could tell you that there's a lot of states where uh, code enforcement have a variety of different levels. Um, I, I, one of our board members is actually a peace officer in Georgia, and there the code enforcement officers, depending on the agency, uh, go through a full police academy, uh, and their job title is code enforcement officer, but they uh, have arrest powers. Um, they actually back up uh, the local police officers on calls, um, but they just focus on code enforcement. Uh, and there's other states like Texas where police officers are actually assigned to a division uh, where they just enforce code enforcement, you know, do code enforcement. Um, so they're um, uh, full-time police officers that get hired on and they uh, go through the um, training and they're assigned like a kind of like a detective or specialty uh, unit and they enforce uh, the codes uh, and health and safety. So there's a variety across the country of how they, they handle and, and uh, classify code enforcement officers. Yeah, that's... Uh... In, you know, in times where we had full staffing and plenty of officers to go around and uh, we used to staff um, school resource officers and liaison officers to schools, but also a code enforcement officers, just like you described liaison um, to, to like we talked about the matrix for SWAT callouts that the sworn code enforcement officer could sort of look at the projects of the non-sworn code enforcement officer and then determine if they needed to be of assistance on those calls. And I want to get into some of the uh, threats and the, the things that face uh, code enforcement officers. After our message, I'd like to take a quick moment and thank our sponsor. At Kenwood, we make sure first responders have mission-critical radio systems that work no matter what. When the mission is critical, no one has time for complexities or static or system failures. It has to work perfectly in the worst conditions. That's why Kenwood focuses on innovating, developing, and implementing the highest quality secure communication solutions to organizations whose mission is to protect and save lives. 
We ensure you will always have the lifeline you need when you need it. We make safe simple. Visit us online at www.efjohnson.com. And we are back with Justin Edson talking about the value and threats to code enforcement officers. So, Justin, what are first of all, what's the biggest misconception uh, that that you're getting from both sworn and the public? What do what do people thinking that's not quite right? Yeah, um, I, I would say uh, for the sworn side, um, I, I think as the years have gone on, it's been a great relationship building. Uh, I've seen um, some great uh, working teams uh, across different agencies. So I would say that we're on track, we're if not already there, to have such a great teamwork with uh, the sworn counterparts. Uh, I personally have a friend in another state that's a police officer, and uh, he tells me stories about him working with his code enforcement uh, to deal with gang houses and, and drug uh, activity. And so the relationship is strong. I would just recommend that whether it's from the chief uh, and management all the way down is look for those opportunities uh, to engage the code enforcement team and see how they could help out. Um, most code enforcement officers I know would love the opportunity to work with uh, police officers and see how they can team up and work on projects together. So um, if you're already not engaged with the code enforcement team or have some type of unifying uh, factor there, look at opportunities to bring them together. Um, some of the cities I've worked for, we've created a uh, citywide task force uh, made up of multiple departments. And that way we can focus on uh, problems and uh, whether it's called a community enhancement team um, or um, any other similar terms that uh, involve police, fire, code, public works. And when a problem pops up, everybody jumps on it and finds the right solution. And uh, we've gone to briefings with uh, uh, the patrol guys. So it's a lot of different things that we um, can cross over. And I think the relationship is just building on itself with the sworn. Um, so I would just encourage them to you know, incorporate it in the training process of new recruits, uh, bring them into to, to teams. Um, with the public, uh, it could drastically vary um, city to city, uh, from person to person. I would say, generally speaking, majority of the public uh, is supportive of code enforcement, uh, understand the values of that, uh, how they keep up property values, enhance the community, uh, and they play a vital role in that. Uh, they're not fine-based. They're not uh, disciplinary. It's they're looking for ways to creatively enhance their community. So I would say most cases we have great support from our, our uh, residents and the public, um, but we do deal with a handful of interesting folks. Um, the sovereign citizens um, are ones that we come across quite a bit mm -hmm. because they're they're in the mindset of folks that um, believe the government shouldn't overreach and regulate what they do with their property. And that's the job of code enforcement is to make sure they meet certain standards. So I've had my interaction with sovereign citizens um, and they get quite aggressive. Uh, we also deal with our fair share of mental illness uh, with hoarding cases, with homeless camps that we get on, involved in. So there's a, a, a variety of things that we can be exposed to. Um, and we interact with uh, similar types of folks that the sworn officers deal with. Um, and we don't know what their current state of mind is um, and what's going on. And for example, right now with COVID-19, the last year has been very challenging on the code enforcement profession. Uh, a lot of agencies and jurisdictions, at least here in California, have looked to code enforcement 
uh, to work with the public health department and enforce a lot of those regulations, uh, mask mandates, social distancing, uh, essential businesses. And so that put a lot of responsibility on code enforcement staff. Um, and some cities have chosen not to utilize their code staff to uh, regulate that. Um, but that put, put our teams um, kind of in harm's way. They're exposed to bio um, hazard of uh, contracting COVID, which we, we have had code enforcement officers that have contracted it uh, because of the job duties that they were assigned. And then there's also the threat that um, given the emotional situation of things, business owners and, and residents um, have different views of, of enforcement for, for COVID-19. It's very um, politicized and it, you know it's a, it's a tough topic, but code enforcement officers have been the ones that have been tasked with um, regulating what businesses should be open or whatnot. And there's been cases where they've been assaulted. Uh, one a few months ago involved a code enforcement officer here in LA County um, that was doing COVID-19 enforcement, and he was punched right in the face by a violator. Um, and so he had to get medical treatment for that. We've had other ones that been hit by a car um, and assaulted um, just because they've been tasked with enforcing that um, because they, the cities and the jurisdictions didn't want to put that on the police department um, or you know another agency, and it naturally fell on code enforcement. So it presented some challenges uh, related to officer safety um, that have been concerning, um, but we're uh, making the best of everything and, and learning from it and trying to find ways to keep uh, ourselves safe while meeting the requirements of our job. So um, it's it's been an interesting uh, uh, year with that, but we've had a great relationship with the public. And I can tell you, speaking for code enforcement officers across the country too, the number one goal for code enforcement is to work with residents, work with businesses, and just be on the same page to, to reach compliance. Uh, there is no goal to write as many tickets or uh, create any type of issues with people. Um, code enforcement just wants to make sure the community is safe. And that's that's the goal at the end of the day. Well, that's great. That's terrific. Um, yeah, I, I, it resonates with me when you talk about the officer safety issues and you know, you're being asked to go onto properties of individuals who are out of compliance, right? They, I could think back to several years back in San Francisco. It started out with, you know, sewage running out from under a guy's uh, garage door, and then the officer going up to the door, and the individual was a hoarder, just like you described, and uh, pulled out a gun. Uh, the officer got away safely. Called uh, for officers. They responded after a standoff. Um, the individual. Uh, attempted to fire at the officers and and he was he was killed in the process. So there's a real threat there. Uh, friends of mine work for utilities and they go on to properties asking people uh, to trim their trees for utilities and things like that. And they are often threatened often with vehicles or or firearms, just as you described. So there's a real threat out there. I know, you as the president of your organization for the safety of your code enforcement officers, you've got some legislation or there's some state legislation in the works. Uh, can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so the foundation uh, is on a, on a national level, it promotes officer safety uh, across all 50 states and every state is kind of run a little bit differently. Um, they have different associations and, and uh, groups that uh, try to focus on code enforcement in their state. 
uh, here in California, Casio has uh, really taken the forefront of pushing legislation at Sacramento. And so for the last couple of years, they've been trying to push one bill in particular. Um, this year it's SB 101 um, and it's the DMV confidentiality bill. And for years, they've been trying to get Sacramento to approve that bill, which would essentially add code enforcement officers to the list of professions that get DMV confidentiality. Um, and it's right in line with all the other ones on the list. I mean, just to name a few, there's uh, peace officers, uh, jailers, uh, parking enforcement, dispatchers, all, all of them are on the confidentiality list, but code enforcement officers are not. Um, if the code enforcement officer enforces parking regulations, they can uh, apply for that uh, through that means, but code enforcement is not on that list. And um, going back to 1992, um, a code enforcement officer in Bakersfield, California, um, she was murdered by a violator. Um, he essentially uh, beat her up at his property. She took him to court. He, um, from what we, we had learned, he had a friend that had access to DMV records and he found out where she lived and he went to her home and murdered her, her husband and her mom. And their two uh, kids were able to hide and get away. And it ended up leading on a big pursuit with 32 police officers, um, a huge gun battle, and he ended up uh, being fatally killed. Um, but he found out through the DMV records of where she lived. Mm -hmm. And so since 1992, nothing's been changed with um, kind of protecting the identity and the where they live for code enforcement officers. So we've been trying to push this bill. Um, and so that one is uh, coming up this year, SB 101. The other one that California is pushing is SB 296. And that bill um, is to set um, an officer safety standards uh, and from agency to agency. So it's not um, highlighting what should be the minimum across the state, but it's basically putting the onus on the agency to do a risk assessment and understand the duties that they give their code enforcement officers, are they properly equipped um, to do their job and, and do it in a safe way? And that could be everything from personal protective equipment, um, dealing with hoarding and hazards, but it also can deal with their own personal protection, body armor, uh, pepper spray, police radios for help. Um, there's a, a wide variety of things, but it, it would put a requirement on each agency to do an assessment and require a, a minimum level of protection. And so we're hoping to really get some support for that um, in Sacramento this year. Um, and so we're very thankful for the senators that have supported it, um, but we're always looking for more support for those bills. Um, some other states are looking at passing legislation right now. The state of Texas is trying to um, create a bill that would do something similar uh, as California, but it would um, protect the code enforcement officer's uh, home address and information on the county assessor uh, role. So that way nobody can try to search up where a code enforcement officer lives through their uh, county assessor. So piece by piece, each state's trying to uh, develop uh, protections for code enforcement officers. And as uh, this newly founded foundation that we created last year, our goal is to try to unify those efforts so that there's a one-stop shop for code enforcement officers across the country to look at what states are doing and how they're pushing certain legislation, how they're wording it, um, and, and hopefully help each other so that there could be a unified voice. And so um, officer safety is a, is a big topic for us, um, both here in the state and obviously for our foundation, that it's 
unlike you know police officers where they have usually the, the same equipment from agency to agency or state to state um the same less lethal options the same you know they all wear body armor code enforcement officers can greatly vary even in one state they you know from agency to agency could uh be given different tools so all we advocate for both in the state and uh, nationally is we're trying to set some minimum standards things that just get the risk managers the decision makers thinking about how do we best protect our employees? Um, because we're asking them to go onto people's properties and tell them how to clean up. Um, we're shutting down businesses um, that are, are illegal. Um, and we're, we're doing things that expose us to risk. Uh, for example, some of the cities I've worked for, we're involved in illegal marijuana dispensaries, grow houses, um, grow facilities. Uh, my last agency I was with, we, we shut down a dispensary uh, that had ties to the cartel. And they had people sitting out front watching us. And again, our license plates are not confidential. Um, they can easily find out who we are. And we're there with police officers and, and regional task force, but we're the only ones that aren't protected. Um, and so we are being brought in as a resource, which I know most code enforcement officers are, are happy to assist and, and offer uh, you know, our help to resolve these community concerns. But there isn't a really a dedicated look at, we need to equip them with tools to do their job and to do it safely. And so um, we're building that conversation. For example, in 2014 and 2018, um, two different risk um, management uh, insurance authorities came together and, and wrote different articles about code enforcement as a profession. And one of those um, was in 2018 was the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority, uh, which is well known here in California. They wrote an article in 2018 by a risk manager um, that talked about the, the paramount concerns for our profession and the risk that code enforcement officers face, um, that they're usually uh, ill-equipped um, and they're tasked with new things every year. Um, like I just mentioned earlier, last year, we, we were on the front lines of COVID-19. And I can tell you, we weren't considered um, on the front line as police officers and firefighters, that a few months ago, Casio um, had uh, reached out to legislators requesting that code enforcement officers be listed as frontline so we had access to COVID vaccines. And um, in some agencies, they were able to get it and others they weren't. And even though we were one of the, the main ones tasked with going into businesses and telling people to put masks on, um, and code enforcement officers were getting infected, and yet we weren't considered frontline. So there's little things like that that we're trying to work on um, that help protect uh, code enforcement officers um, across the state and also across the country. Well, that's great. I mean, the school, re the, the the code enforcement officers are great allies. They're great resources uh, to address those broken windows issues and the septed concerns and uh yeah there you're at risk uh, you are frontline and dealing with things that i i see expanding you know considering the new posture uh by legislators and the public so expanding uh it's interesting to note that um you know most of this legislation just happened in you know four or five years ago so uh, it's it's due time. You're overdue. We've we've really been uh, uh, valuing your service uh, to our communities, and you should be recognized and protected. So, thanks for the work that you're doing, uh, Justin. 
How can our, our listeners hear more about what's happening um, in their own regions with code enforcement uh, allies? I know on Instagram, you've got a code enforcement safety foundation, the CACEO, and gosh, there's a dozen or so others. So your social media presence is good. How else can um, officers find out about uh, their local code enforcement officer? Yeah, we, um, so like I mentioned before, most states have their own association um, that kind of help organize the training, uh, the networking, and and the kind of the unified voice for that state. And so right now, most states have their own. Um, some actually don't have any yet. Um, and uh, even though we're 20, 30 years into this profession, um, like I said, I most trace back to the 1980s when code enforcement positions started to pop up. Um, we're now at the forefront where we're starting to see a lot of things getting organized, um, a lot of new messages getting out. And so the Code Enforcement Officer Safety Foundation um, is a national nonprofit that was started last year, um, which I'm the president of. And we have a board that consists of members across different states. And right now, that's really the, the main national um, focus and voice uh, for this subject. And so we encourage people to check out the website, the social media followings, um, to see what resources we offer. And that website that we created uh, started from a lot of different ideas, but primarily it also honored the code enforcement officers that have been murdered over the years. Um, you know, I know that for law enforcement, they have a lot of different websites and, and um, the Officer Down Memorial page is one of the main ones for that. Um, but for us, we wanted to honor and, and highlight um, these code officers that were doing their job and they got murdered doing their job um, for for different reasons. And to highlight a few of those, like I said, the, the dangers that we face, um, you have code enforcement officers that have been murdered um, for, for regulating businesses, uh, for posting a property as condemned because it's so substandard. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in cases like back in 2000, there was three inspectors that were with health um, that were murdered um, by a guy that owned a sausage factory and they went there and, and wrote him up for health violations and he got agitated and shot and killed all three of them. Um, you had Cynthia uh, Volp that I mentioned earlier from Bakersfield that she was, um, had an issue with a substandard, um, apartment complex and the owner found where she lived and went to her house and killed her. Um, and then David Fleetwood from Pennsylvania, he, uh, back in 2013, he had a zoning case on a property that went to court and the judge ruled in favor of the city. Um, and the owner went to a city council meeting and uh, murdered him and two other residents in an active shooter situation because of his code case. Um, and then most notably recently in 2018, we had Jill Robinson from Utah and she was tragically murdered um, going to an inspection, I think, regarding overgrown vegetation of a, of a property. And the gentleman was in the 60s with a walker, met her in, in his driveway, had no previous signs of threats. And she thought she was meeting to, with him just to tell him what he needs to do. He pulls out a gun and executes her and then sets her on fire and sets her truck on fire. And then he got arrested for that. Um, and a month or two later, um, Michael Trippis from Pennsylvania, um, he was a building inspector and a guy that had a code case came into city hall to speak to somebody about his case. And Michael had nothing to do with that case, but when he came to help him at the counter, um, they went back to the office and started talking about it. And the owner shot him uh, point blank in his office and killed him um, 
out of anger over that case. And he had nothing to do with the case. Um, and then last year in 2020, um, Charles case from Georgia, he um, was condemning a property in Atlanta, Georgia, um, because it was substandard, went back to his truck and the owner came out with a shotgun and shot him multiple times while he was sitting in his truck, uh, killed him, and which led to a multi-county manhunt, including, I believe, the ATF and the FBI. And they finally got the guy. And so these are code officers that are unarmed, um, didn't have vests um, and equipment, and they were either ambushed or um, confronted, uh, sometimes with little signs. But in some of these cases, there would have been possibilities that a body, uh, a body armor vest, um, some self-defense equipment could have potentially got them in the fight to save themselves. Um, and others were, were pure ambush. And mm -hmm. so, um, and most recently I'd end with saying that just two months ago in January, um, in Sacramento County, California, um, a health inspector, Dennis, he was stabbed to death um, while he was um, going to a health inspection for a restaurant, passed the inspection, walked out to his car to get into it, and a uh, employee of the restaurant had nothing to do with it. They passed. There's no reason for there to be any negative uh, feelings. Came out to his car, opened his door, and stabbed him to death. Um, and he leaves behind a young daughter um, and um, because he was just doing his job and there was no signs of negative confrontation. So, like I said, code enforcement officers um, are doing their job out there. They face uh, folks with mental illness, with different reservations about government, and they, they're not equipped in a lot of cases to protect themselves. So I would say on a national level, I encourage anybody to check out the, um, the foundation's website, which is codeofficersafety.org. Um, and then also speak to their local state association for more information um, to help build up this, this profession um, and develop standards and equipment um, that keep us all safe. Wow, tragic uh, incidents that you talk of, and I feel for you. I, you're doing a great job. Uh, the code enforcement officers out there are doing a service to the community and uh, making jobs easier for, for law enforcement with, with some of these projects. So. I, I wish you well on the legislation, your Senate bills, and uh, in unifying the other code enforcement uh, associations across the country. And I, I plan to keep in touch. So thank you, Justin, for sharing the information and, and giving us the updates today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I appreciate uh, uh, speaking with you and also um, working with our sworn colleagues across the country. Um, it's it's really a great uh team team focus that we have. So I'm, I'm very privileged and honored to work with everybody um, and look forward to keeping that up going forward. Thanks, Justin. Well, for our listeners, how can you improve your relationships with your code enforcement officers? Think about that. Let us know if you have some great uh, relationships or projects. Uh, and if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave us a review rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to be on the mailbag, send us an email to me and the Policing Matters team at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policeone.com. Drop us a note, share your ideas, suggestions, feedback, or just to say hello we love reading your messages and you may feature, you may be featured on a future podcast. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's been great. I'm Jim Dudley.